3: because the worst trips result when two partners have two
4: different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano!
1: Huh? Oh! Gene, run!
4: Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome
0: to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
4: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, I'd like you to think about something. I'm, that's what I'm here for. I want you to think about the idea of the substance of absence in our in our sensory experience of the world. So we all experience this in our lives, where there is a stark disconnect between everything we know about physics and what our intuitions tell us. And one, one of the examples of this is that there is No such substance in physics as cold, right? Cold is just the absence of heat energy. And yet, if you have an experience like mine, when you hold an ice cube in your hand, it doesn't just feel like heat is leaving your body. It certainly feels like you are meeting cold. You are meeting a substance of coldness that is an independent material reality in itself.
3: Hmm. Not not unlike how many people process sight as a beam coming out of their eyes like they think about it in those terms even though most of those people i think are going to realize that that's not how vision works right but we can't help but interpret what's happening
4: as such yeah it's almost like people think of sight as an apprehending power it's like you would reach out to pick something up so in order to get visions you must be reaching out with your eyes in some way to pull things in yeah Also, to mention light, there's no such substance in physics as darkness. Of course, darkness is just the absence of light. Uh, But when a cloud passes in front of the sun and it casts a shadow over the earth and you get that little shiver when that happens, it Uh is hard not to think of that shadow, the darkness, as a substance unto itself, at least if you're like me.
3: Yeah, I mean, unless an entity is actually stepping out of the negative material plane, right? If there's actual, actually a denizen of the shadow realm uh, breaching your uh, immediate universe. Well,
4: of course I speak not of beings of darkness because merely to speak of them is to summon them, and yes. now we should be watching our backs. <laughs> but another substance like this is the substance of silence. Right. Yeah. So silence is not a thing. It's merely the absence of the vibrational pressure waves of energy that we call sound. But in psychological terms, I wonder, is silence a substance in the same way as cold and dark are to me? And if it is, I think we may have come across some interesting biological reasons for feeling this way. So, Robert, back in 2013, you and Julie did an episode of this show where you talked about the quietest place in the entire world. And I went back and listened to the episode. And at this time, uh, the quietest place in the world was a type of room known as an anechoic chamber, meaning a a chamber that's echo free. No echoes Uh at a facility in Minneapolis, Minnesota, called Orfield Laboratories. You remember doing this episode, I assume. No one has wiped your memory.
3: Uh, It's amazing how much I forget about some some old episodes, Uh Um, but I do remember this one, yes.
4: Okay. (laughs) So uh, if you haven't seen it, you you should Google pictures of this lab facility, you out there listening. Uh, According to Atlas Obscura, it's actually in the same building where Bob Dylan recorded blood on the tracks. Not the same room, but the same building. Uh, And so this room is used to test appliances and equipment for sound production under very, very sensitive conditions by creating the most, the, the quietest environment we could imagine. And to achieve these conditions, the room has been built in a very weird way. So it's got double layered steel and foot thick concrete walls. It's got this vault type door. And then on the walls from floor to ceiling, they are covered with fiberglass acoustic wedges, which are these fuzzy looking three foot long axe blades that stab out into the room from the walls. And it looks like at any moment the trap is going to spring and the walls will begin closing in. And these wedges are going to become interlocking teeth, you know, to grind your bones between them. But as far as we know, it is not a trap. People have been to the room and survived. Uh, though maybe not unscathed. So it's just a room with a very powerful thirst for absorbing sound. And according to the Guinness Book of World Records account, the ambient sound levels inside it are about negative 13 decibels, or DBA, actually, which is just an adjusted version of decibel measurement. Uh, we will horrify the audio engineers and just use decibels for simplicity's sake going forward. But so when you when you hear something like negative 13 decibels that might sound kind of weird right how how could you have negative sound
3: yeah especially since you you look at various lists and uh near total silence is zero uh, a whisper is 15 uh-huh. so it's like a negative whisper. How is that
4: possible? <laughs> well, zero decibels actually doesn't mean no sound. Zero decibels is just taken to be the threshold of normal human hearing mm-hmm. at birth. Your best hearing, infancy hearing. People can usually detect sounds above zero decibels. Below zero decibels, it's, you know, too bad. So it's, it's, a very, it's a very
3: human scale. It's a scale based on human perception of sound, not sound as some sort of um, um, concrete thing outside of human
4: experience exactly and so going into this space of negative decibels is like going into the underverse it puts you in a very uh, bizarre state of mind people who have gone here report that they have a hard time staying in the room too long. They used to have this thing. All, all the articles about it mentioned this challenge that the owner seems mm-hmm. very excited about where he would test people to see how long they could stay in there. He seemed to get some kind of sadistic pleasure out of it, but. In the underverse. Right. With it- the necromongers from Chronicles of Riddick. <laughs> I do
3: appreciate a good Chronicles of Riddick reference, Joe. I actually have never seen Chronicles really? of Really? That's, Riddick. the underverse is a big deal in that. Oh, the, the underverse is bigger than, than Riddick. Oh, well, I, I don't know. Riddick's
4: pretty big. Have you seen his arms? <laughs> He's very, very big. (laughs) I guess you'll, you'll have to show it to me someday. Uh, but so anyway, supposedly inside this anechoic chamber, what happens is people become just hyper aware of the sounds produced by their own bodies. You are, you start to hear the thump of your own heart and hear the kind of squelching of your digestive system and you hear this hissing and rustling, which is your own respiration. And media reports also claim that people become dizzy, disoriented, sometimes kind of panicky, uh, which suggests that our hearing is in some way tied to our body orientation and movement. Right. You may have read these stories about blind people using forms of echolocation to hear where they mm-hmm. are in a room. But this kind of suggests that even people with normal senses, all, all their senses functioning normally, might still use some kind of echolocation and basic body orientation. My favorite detail I heard was I read one story in The Guardian about a man who went into this room and he claimed that after his ears adjusted, he could hear his own scalp moving over his skull when he changed facial expressions.
3: You know, one of the important things to keep in mind about all this, too, is that, of course, it goes without saying that humans have evolved to thrive In a certain sort of environment Mm -hmm. and with a certain amount of sound in their immediate environment. So we're, we have, we did not evolve to, to live in, in quiet chambers. We evolved to live in the world. And so when we are deprived of almost like the the oxygen of sound so much we have to uh, it's almost like the mind has to gulp in more of it yeah Uh, if it doesn't have something to chew on it'll start chewing on itself which is certainly a a trend that occurs time and time again in any kind of uh, experiment looking into sensory deprivation and we are discussing you know one
4: major area of sensory deprivation here and this is another thing that gets mentioned uh in in Context with these anechoic chambers is that you might go into there and experience auditory hallucinations. Mm-hmm just because of that sensory deprivation element. But anyway, since that podcast that you and Julie recorded, there's a new kid in town. Oh, Microsoft has built a silent mind flare chamber even more (laughs) psychedelically quiet than the one at Orfield Labs. And much like the other facility, this one is used for sort of audio and device testing in, in very sensitive conditions. But it's located at Microsoft's Audio Lab in Redmond, Washington. And according to Business Wire, Microsoft contracted a company called Echo Noise Control Technology, I think actually the same company that built the Orfield room, uh, to build this new dungeon of lost whispers (laughs) for them. And it was completed in July 2014. But compared to Orfield's negative 13 decibels, this room gets as quiet as negative 20.6 decibels. And this is close to about as quiet as a room filled with atmosphere can possibly be. So, since sound is caused by uh, mechanical pressure waves in a medium Mm -hmm. such as air or water, there is no sound at all in a vacuum. If you were to go into the vacuum of space, you wouldn't hear anything. But in a room filled with
3: screams, exactly.
4: uh, But in a room filled with normal atmosphere, negative twenty-three decibels is about as quiet as things can get because that's the sound level of what's known as Brownian motion, which is the random movement of air particles rustling against one another. Huh. I would love to hear what that sounds like.
3: I think Brownian uh, Motion of Air Particles is actually an Eno album. Yeah? Uh, Yeah, yeah. uh, Late 70s.
4: A perfect companion to metal machine music. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so I started thinking about this room and about how there are actually plenty of God beings and monsters from the history of human imagination who have found themselves in a dire quest for a place like this room. Uh, I, I think that the quest for peace and quiet is it's we think of it as something of the modern age, right? Mm-hmm. You live in the city where there's the traffic, the horns honking, people screaming, uh, people I don't know, arguing about Pokemon go and about whether adults should play it or not outside your window at all hours of the night. And we, we come to associate this feeling of, of this noisy cacophony with modernity, but, but this feeling goes way back. Oh yeah. I mean,
3: really humans haven't changed that much. Not so much that they've stopped being, uh, annoying and obnoxious and loud Mm -hmm. Uh, we've we've had loud talkers uh among us uh we've had we've had individuals who cannot wake up silently Mm -hmm. uh since time out of mind
4: though then again i do think it's kind of interesting we're going to mention a few of these that the quest for silence the Mm -hmm. desire for peace and quiet is often associated with villains not heroes
3: Mm -hmm. Well, you do see, yeah, I mean, I think I think it falls on both sides. Yeah, Uh, I guess the heroes that are seeking silence, they tend to want to share that path to silence with others. Uh So it's more about, hey, everybody, let me show you the way to the silence. Let me show you a way of silence that'll better your life, whereas the monsters are a little more selfish.
4: Well, one great example of this is the Inanna Elish, the creation myth of ancient Mesopotamia, which you see in ancient Sumerian and Babylonian texts. Originally, it's Sumerian, focused on the god Inlil, later the Babylonian version is altered to glorify the Babylonian god Marduk, but the story is Pretty much that the gods Apsu and Tiamat, freshwater and saltwater personified, they they sort of live in this primordial chaos and they create a younger generation of gods who just make a great ruckus. They cause disorder, irritating noise. And Apsu, in reaction to this, plots to destroy his creations in order to get some peace and quiet. Quote, by day I cannot rest. By night I cannot lie down in peace, but I will destroy their way. Let there be lamentation, and let us lie down again in peace. Oh, nice. Now, of course, uh, later a hero has to come and, and fight these beings. Actually, so Apsu gets destroyed, and then Tiamat, uh, his his sort of companion, his female counterpart, becomes a monster that has to be fought. Uh, but so, yeah, n- not the heroes of the peace here. But they want some peace and quiet. all all these new created beings are just too loud and irritating. Ah,
3: isn't it always the way? The youth are are loud, and they need to they need to pipe down because us old people are trying to 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 get some sleep.
4: I wonder if that is what's behind the idea of Grendel in Beowulf.
3: Oh yeah, because he uh, he quite famously uh, is not a fan of the noise, not a fan of the the partying. Uh, that's, uh, coming, uh, uh, from the Mead Hall across the way.
4: Right. So what's the, what's the basic story of Grendel and Beowulf? It's, it, Beowulf comes to Hrothgar's Mead Hall of Hero, right? In mm-hmm. the, the land of the, the Dane men. And they, they party in the hall and have their big feasts. And somewhere nearby, there's this monster called Grendel, not actually described physically very much. Yeah. Virtually no
3: physical descriptions. Um, which means basically any interpretation you have is valid. Uh,
4: I did read some great uh, translations of of the description, what they do say about him. The march-stepper famous who dwelt in the moor fens, the marsh and the fastness. Uh, a fiend in hell this ghastly demon was, named Grendel, infamous stalker of the marches, who held the moors, fin and desolate stronghold, the land of the marsh monsters. Nice.
3: Uh, I always liked uh, the way John Gardner described him in his uh, novel *Grindel*, which mm-hmm. is one of my my favorites. He described him as quote a shadow
4: shooter, Earth rim roamer, walker of the world's weird wall. Oh, that's so great! And that captures this is a feature of the Anglo-Saxon poetry is the alliteration there, where you hear the uh, the same words starting consonants used over and over. Mm-hmm and Gardner captures that very well. But anyway, so in the story of course Beowulf has to go and kill Grendel, and the reason he does that is cuz he's a jerk basically. He <laughs> is, but also it's because Grendel comes into Hrothgar's mead hall and and messes them up. He he yeah. comes in
3: and kills some He people. does kill a lot of a lot of people uh in the um uh, in the dane men's defense.
4: Yeah, so why does he come into the Mead Hall and kill the Dane men? Well, there are a couple ways you could read this, but the basic way is the way it's described in the poem, it's kind of vague, but it seems like he's annoyed by the noise they're making. Right. So, one translation reads, quote, then the bold spirit impatiently endured dreary time, he who dwelt in darkness, he that every day heard noise of revelry loud in the hall, there was the harmony of the harp, the sweet song of the poet. Uh, and he doesn't like this noise. Now, it's unclear to me, and I think there are actually differing opinions on this, whether the text means that Grindel was actually jealous of the Danes' You know friendship and happiness their their camaraderie in the party, or merely that he just couldn't stand the noise, the sound of it bothered him well, this is the same question
3: we ask ourselves when whenever we're annoyed by a, a neighbor having a loud party? Yeah. am I annoyed because they are loud and it, and I want to sleep right now, or am I loud because I was not invited or I yeah. am not invited to parties like this anymore that the, the, that line
4: of questioning well, it might be hard to tell the difference, yeah. Robert, you made a fascinating observation I had never considered before. Oh, yeah. Tell me. Tell me about. Oh,
3: well, I, I read a lot of Dr. Seuss books these days. Uh-huh. And so anytime I read or if we end up viewing The Grinch Who Stole Christmas, the, the comparisons are, are, pretty, uh, are, are pretty obvious because in Grindel. You have a monster that lives uh, out in the boonies who comes into the center of civilization and uh, unleashes havoc when there is too much noise. And the same thing happens with the Grinch. The Grinch. Hates the noise of the Christmas season. Even the
4: gr is there. Yeah, the, grin. the Grinch. It, it the It seems grindle. like it's got to be intentional, right?
3: Oh, the noise, 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 noise. There's one thing I hate: all the noise, 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 noise. It's the Who's in Whoville are like the the Dane men in hero. Yeah, except instead of uh, you know coming in and killing Who's, he just was gonna he's gonna uh, you know he's gonna surgically remove the cause of their joy. Uh, and the the joy being the cause of their noise, but of right. course that backfires and he has to
4: to remove Christmas. And, yeah, yeah, but then his heart grew three sizes that day.
3: Yeah, there are a number of uh anatomical uh, complications in the comparison. Uh, but it doesn't,
4: doesn't happen to Grendel. Grendel, I believe, his head shrinks many sizes that day. Yeah, but well, not sure. he gets his head cut off.
3: Yeah, also the arm. Yeah, arm too. The arm, the arm is cut off first, as I recall. Oh, okay. Uh, no, not cut off. Uh, because I think blades don't quite cut him. Like blades melt or something when they when they they hit his blood. Yeah, I do the There's some descriptions that can be interpreted that either Grindel's blood is acidic and is eating through the blade, or it is so hot that it is melting the blade. Whoa! But uh, Beowulf just rips off the arm and then Grindel runs away.
4: Wow. So here we've got these monsters and god beings uh, causing mayhem and havoc and trouble for the, the creatures that dwell under their level of power by trying to shut them up and just wanting silence. And, and if we could only find a room for Grendel, if we could find an anechoic chamber for yeah. him, this never would have happened. But I wondered if there are any straight up gods of silence. Well, there is um,
3: Harpocrates, Her- the Greek god of silence. And he's thought to have evolved from the, a childhood variant of the Egyptian god Horus. Hmm. But ultimately, Harpocrates uh, is really more about secrets than silence. Hmm. Uh, so it's, it's more about, yeah, uh, you know, occult knowledge. In many interpretations, as opposed to just, oh, I need a nice meditative place to think.
4: I knew there was a group of monsters in Doctor Who called the Silence, but I looked them up and found that their name is somewhat misleading. Oh, yeah. What do they do? Uh, the, they engineer history and cause people to have uh, mass forgettings of events and stuff. But the, uh, as far as I know, they're not especially all that quiet. Oh, well, one one that is quite I, I have to confess I'm not a doctor here expert. I, I don't know that much about it. What him. did you ever watch Buffy? No, I actually didn't. Really? Oh, no. well. Wow. Uh, should, should I? I? It's a lot of fun. Uh, you know, you kind of have to
3: plow through that first season, but um but it's it's all it's all fun after that, as I recall. Uh, but one episode in particular, one of the the best episodes uh is titled Hush. And it uh, concerns a group of uh, sort of fairy tale ghoulish creatures called the gentlemen. And they uh, come to town to steal everyone's voices, leaving them unable to scream when they come around and cut everyone's hearts out. Oh. And then we finally learned that if you, uh, the reason here is because loud noises, such as those caused by a screaming human, cause the creatures'
4: heads to explode. Now that's funny you should mention it because one thing we do know. Is that loud noises can definitely cause injury and damage to living creatures?
3: Oh yeah, I mean there's a lot of data out there about about noise pollution. Um, you know, various uh, various human. I mean humans even, but also plenty of non-human animals. Uh, the distraction alone can put many prey animals at an increasing risk of predation. Uh, and the more pronounced effects are generally found in marine mammals such as whales uh, and also in uh, cephalopods. Uh, the giant squid actually offers the 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 clearest example of this yeah yeah in the in the early 2000s uh low frequency sound pulse exercises uh that i believe were being utilized uh by the oil industry uh-huh. um it was like dynamite fishing for squid right right yeah essentially so they're they're blasting out these uh, these low frequency pulses and then dead squid start uh, start just uh, popping up and uh they seem to have extensive bodily damage and uh, when they looked closer, they found that uh, like their mantles were reduced to pulp. There was bruised muscles, lesions in their statocysts, which are these uh fluid-filled organs that rest behind the creature's eyes that help them maintain their balance and position. Uh-huh. And a few years after this, Spanish marine biologist Angel Guerra investigated this uh, further. And found that low frequency sound exposure intensities between 157 and 175 uh, decibels and frequency ranges. Which is very loud. Yeah. You should say. Yeah. Uh, one of the things to, to drive home and I'll throw some, throw out some comparisons here in a bit is that, yeah, underwater, uh, sounds can really get up there. Some of our loudest noises on earth are occurring underwater. Uh-huh. Um, but, uh, but anyway, in this experiment found that, uh, that uh, there was a great deal of uh, st- uh status tissue damage including the destruction of tiny inverted hair-like sensory structures in the cells that helped the the creatures maintain their balance so this effectively crippled them and even the su- the, the, the the various uh cell uh, that they uh studied uh the ones that survived the experiment exhibited in some cases visible holes in the tissue. so wow. so we're talking you know legitimate it's physical like being damage a by bomb, sound kind of yeah. yeah yeah i mean the worst if, if you're comparing places to be next to a bomb, um, the water is far worse. Like if someone throw, if you're at a, if you're poolside and someone throws a grenade, two grenades into your vicinity, one in the water, one on the surface, definitely stay on the surface. But also avoid pool parties where grenades are being thrown around. How do you keep getting invited to those? I don't know. Um, like when I, when I, when they stop inviting me, then I'm gonna, I'm gonna feel bad. I'm gonna look back on it and say, why, why don't they invite me to these loud, noisy grenade parties? Uh, and I wish I could go to sleep.
4: Now, Robert, right before we get back to the subject of silence, I know everybody wants to know, how do you make a human head explode with sound?
3: Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples.
4: Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
0: A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the tonne.
1: Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: All right, so this is a uh, pretty cool. There was a a popular science article by uh, Seth Etz Horowitz that came out uh, a few years back, and he looked into this. I'll include. It, we'll make sure we include a link to this on the landing page for this episode because it's worth checking out. Uh, but... He ruled that, yes, sufficiently powerful sound waves can make a human ex- head explode, much like the the gentleman on Buffy. Um, because uh, infrasound is essentially a, a hell of a thing. So if you crank it up <laughs> to uh, 18.98 uh, hertz, the, the same uh, resonance of the human eye, and the resulting distortions can make you see weird ghostly shapes. Uh, however, if you crank it up to 240, um, decibels, you can get the skull to resonate destructively, wow. especially, uh, it's especially the case if you're using a dead, uh, like a cadaver head, but, uh, but this could conceivably be the case with a living head as well Mm -hmm. to put that in perspective low frequency sonar can reach 235 decibels and the 1908 tunguska event you know of course the a a near earth object colliding with the earth it's heard around the world uh, perhaps the loudest single event in modern history and it probably hit 300 to 315 decibels wow so loud stuff
4: so we've never seen anybody's head explode from sound, as
3: far as No, concerned. and I think the way that um, the the way that Horowitz uh, explained it is that if you were sitting there, you if you had the technology to do it, you would still get bored, and you just probably want to brain the person in the head with the device you're using. Like it's <laughs> it's not a ve- there are far better ways to make a head explode than depending on sound.
4: Okay, so we've been talking about the idea of silence as a substance and where you can find it. And one... Piece that I came across that I thought was pretty interesting was a short article in High Country News, which is a very good magazine focusing on nature in the American West. Uh, and it was about places of quiet in the American wilderness. Now, we often think about human activity as the primary purveyor of noise, which it usually is. Uh, but leaving the city doesn't always mean heading to a place of quiet. Of course, I think about William Butler Yeats, Lake Isle of Innisfree. He wants to get away from the bustle of the city but where he's going isn't going to be silent, right? Because he's going to live in the bee loud glade. <laughs> what a great term. But anyway, you know, nature, you hear the nature sounds, the crickets, the wind rustling the leaves. But even in nature, some places are louder than others. So at uh, the, they talk about Idaho's City of Rocks National Reserve. It's going to be very quiet, but you'll still probably hear the faint sounds of running water and rustling leaves. Um. And it can get quieter. One example is Colorado's Great Sand Dunes National Park, which is very quiet. According to research by the National Park Service, it's almost as quiet as it was before the European colonization of America. But like the anechoic chamber, this level of silence sort of highlights an underlying lack of silence. You go into the chamber and you hear your heartbeat, your scalp moving, all of that creepy stuff. You apparently go to Great Sand Dunes National Park, and they say that you hear other sounds from very far away. For example, the sounds of the Denver International Airport. I did a quick Google Maps check to see how far away that is, and it's about 250 miles or a four-hour drive. So if this is true... You're, you're hearing planes taking off for, from 250 miles away. That's just crazy. Yeah. They also put together, uh, the National Park Service put together a map of America with color coding for different levels of noise. And uh, so they, they have these blue regions where it's very quiet and these yellow regions where it's loud. One thing I noticed is there's a very sharp uh, east-west divide. The west is much quieter than the east. And I I would say from experience, I think that's right. Even being in the wilderness, if you get out of the cities, when I notice going to the wilderness in the east, it's I don't know. You hear bugs and you hear wind rustling the leaves and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Probably the quietest place I can ever remember being was the desert in southwest Texas at Big Bend National Park, where there was this one day where. Uh, I was uh, riding around in a car with uh, my wife, Rachel, and her cousin, Marie, and one day we, we parked, and I went off by myself to hike up a, a short little trail, and by myself at the top of this trail, I can remember just hearing nothing. Couldn't hear any water, any insects, any birds, any wind or leaves. The air was very still. Uh, I just heard this kind of vague whir of things very distant. And it's one of the bluest places on the map, actually. Hmm.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, impressive to look at one of these maps. You know where not to move if you were a Grindel or a Grinch. So, like, right. obviously, don't go virtually anywhere anywhere. Uh... Uh, in New England, stay out of the Midwest. Yeah, don't but go to Florida.
4: E- even the sparsely populated Midwest, it looks like there there are a lot of places that are kind of yellow. And I wonder if that's because of a uh, kind of flat landscape and a lot of highways. You yeah. hear traffic from very far away. Yeah, you pretty much have to go to the desert. OK, but I think we should actually talk about some medical research with reference to silence and noise. Now, everybody knows, of course, that noise can be really irritating, but I think we don't often realize the extent to which noise takes a measurable toll on human, t- on human health. And some people have actually tried to measure this. For example, I found one 2014 study in the Lancet that said, quote, Observational and, and experimental studies have shown that noise exposure leads to annoyance, disturbs sleep and causes daytime sleepiness, affects patient outcomes and staff performance in hospitals, increases the occurrence of hypertension and cardiovascular disease and impairs cognitive performance in school children. Now, if all these things were being caused by some food additive or something, we would be freaking out.
3: Yeah. Um, you know, there I believe that on the the, the childhood front, there there have been studies in recent years that have looked into like the role background music plays and how that can actually that has a, can have a detrimental effect mm-hmm. uh on um, on, well, on one hand on just communicating with the kid and like getting their attention because even though you're cool with some ambient music playing in the background and that enhances your experiences of the scenario, it can be actually kind of distracting for them. And I believe that it, it occasionally even uh, has been shown to, um, to bleed over into language acquisition Hmm. to to some degree. Uh, I don't have the research in front of me right now, but that's interesting. But even yeah, but even the the noise that we take for granted, the stuff that's not noise, the stuff that we, that adults put on, to cancel out the noise can itself um, you know, have a noisome effect.
4: Yeah, and so when you're exposed to a noise, of course, this activates a stress response in the brain. It goes mm-hmm. to the amygdala, and that triggers the, res- uh, the release of stress h- hormones like cortisol. And, of course, these hormones serve a purpose in nature, right? If you, you've got... You got to get ready for a fight or you got to be able to run. But if you've just got continuously elevated levels of stress hormone being triggered by noises that have no relevance to you whatsoever, mm-hmm. that's not good for your health and there's no good reason for it.
3: Yeah. So we're talking like horns honking, um, Things out of the ordinary, things that your mind hasn't had a chance to sort of program into the normal
4: array of sounds. Jackhammers on the floor above you in your office.
3: Yeah, it's weird to think about this because I, I actually live next to train tracks. Yeah. And I virtually never hear, like I hear them all the time, but I almost never register them. Uh, and they never interfere with my, my sleep or anything unless there's a sound that, uh, that happens that's out of the ordinary. Mm-hmm. Like some sort of occasionally there's like this huge shuddering, um, stop uh, to a train that's making its way through. But other than that, I, I legitimately haven't really Heard the train in a distractive manner since the day I moved into the house.
4: Well, there's one thing I would say is that you might not even be aware of the extent to which it is disturbing your sleep Hmm. Uh, because uh, noise disturbance of sleep is a major factor in these health outcomes. In fact, in 2011, the World Health Organization, they put together this big report and they were collecting evidence on the public health risks posed by noise in Uh European Union member states. And they actually put numbers on it. They tried to take what we know and make some estimates of what the total effects are. And, of course, what they were calculating this in was something called a dailies or, or disability-adjusted life years. So how many healthy years is this issue taking off of people's lives? You can measure a lot of negative health uh, factors that way. And they said, quote, with conservative assumptions applied to the calculation methods, it's estimated that – uh dailies lost from environmental noise are sixty one thousand years for uh heart disease. 45,000 years for cognitive impairment of children, 903,000 years for sleep disturbance, 22,000 years for tinnitus, 654,000 years for annoyance in the European Union member states. <laughs> uh, the results indicate that at least one million healthy life years are lost every year from traffic related noise in the western part of Europe. Huh. Well, that's a good thing
3: I turn on that white noise in the evening.
4: That does bring something up. I, I want to keep thinking about throughout this episode. Is is white noise the same as silence? Like, what really is silence? If uh, we've established this principle, where you go into the the anechoic chamber, and there's silence, and that just means that you notice your heartbeat and you notice the you know the the creepy scalp. You go to uh, a national park in Colorado, and you notice planes taking off hundreds of miles away you're always digging deeper into the background sound palette. Uh-huh. And so if that's the case, what is silence? Is there actually such an experience as silence? Well,
3: as far as white noise machines go, uh, I feel like in a way that the use of colors is kind of telling. Now, specifically, I use a brown noise. Yes. Uh, that's my favorite setting. It's, it's a good one. Yeah. And it's hard not to think of it in terms of, of of say a wall that was once white, so like all right, it's got some smears on it, it's got some scuffs. I could try and clean it down. I could try and go back to that 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 white level. I could try and scrub everything away and get to some level of silence. But I'm better off just putting up a wall of sound and just make just painting the wall brown. Sorry, I'm, I'm mixing my metaphors here. But no, no, I see what you're creating saying. a new. Um, a, a new seamless sound, uh, you know, base level of noise. Yes. That has no, no variety. There are not going to be any sudden, uh, you know, goblin, um,
4: cackles or anything. Yeah, yeah. Quiet, predictable sound you can tune out and register as silence. Yeah. Real silence is hard to tune out because you're constantly hearing tiny variations.
3: Yeah. I don't want. To hear all the little noises that might happen during the night, I don't want to, I certainly don't want to hear anything the cat's up to, so I would rather just just go
4: ahead and put up this wall of sound. You don't want to hear it doing research on how to take your soul. (laughs) It's going through those books of the occult you got. You know you shouldn't have bought those. I know, especially the ones written in cat. (laughs) (laughs) So... Robert, one of the things that actually inspired me to do this episode was, uh, was an article I read from Nautilus that was a July 2016 piece in Nautilus by Daniel A. Gross called This Is Your Brain on Silence. And this actually turned me on to a few more avenues of, of inquiry that I want to talk about now. So, uh, in Gross's piece, he mentions a few studies and one of them is this 2006 study in the journal Heart by uh, a scientist named uh, Luciano Bernardi and colleagues. And it's called Cardiovascular, Cerebrovascular, and Respiratory Changes Induced by Different Types of Music in Musicians and Non-Musicians, The Importance of Silence. Long name, but the interesting takeaway from this is that they were intending to study physiological effects of different types of music. This sounds like pretty standard research, right? So they hook you up to some machines and they want to play, I don't know exactly what different music they played, probably some, probably some metal, probably some classical. They played uh, exciting music, arousing music, relaxing music, and they measured things about your body, respiration, systolic blood pressure, circulation in the brain, and they were trying to figure out, you know, do different types of music change these things? Now, of course, they did. Different types of music did indeed lead to different states of arousal and cause physiological changes. But Bernardi and colleagues found that the most Drastic changes and the most interesting changes happened when random two-minute intervals of silence were introduced as a control to the tests. So these periods of silence had a physiologically measurable effect of calming and relaxation, more so than the relaxing, calming music that they were attempting to test. So this is kind of like if you went to a fancy restaurant or a wine tasting and the best part of your experience was the palate cleanser between courses, you know, the crackers or the sorbet or whatever. So that. That actually does more for you than anything else. It's like
3: that wonderful scene in Puditang, um, yes, which which I I always have enjoyed. As I think it's a I think it's a fine movie. It's a
4: great science fiction film. <laughs> but there's a scene
3: where uh, where Puditang, uh, the, the 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 title character, who is himself uh, an accomplished musician and uh, just sort of cultural phenomenon. Yeah. Um he goes all around winter. Yeah, just all around winter. He goes in and he's gonna cut this new track. He's gonna drop this new track. And uh he gets the, the uh the sound engineer to just bring all the levels down and he passionately performs a track of pure silence. And and it becomes a, a sensation. And I, I think it's kind of a beautiful idea that it's like in this in, in an in an age where, like, it's all about, like, the, the noise, the, the music, the, right. the constant mu- music on top of all the sounds around us, that an actual silence, some forced meditation, it, it may be even like essentially a two minute interval of silence. Uh, enforced on everyone would have a profound impact.
4: Well, yeah, it's Pootie Tang's spin on the uh, the original work of the composer John Cage, right? Mm-hmm. So John Cage would do these experimental music things where you know, you might be just like random turned on radios or complete silence uh-huh. or something like that. Uh, and it's it's easy to make jokes about that. You know, you you go to a classical music concert and sit there while a pianist sits in front of a piano and she doesn't play anything. That That's funny, but it's also – yeah, I can see the artistic merit in that, it, causing people to notice other sounds in the room, to notice what the experience of listening is like by not having anything to listen to. Right. But again, it's also easy to make fun of. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love –
1: Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. Uh,
4: but uh, another interesting fact here about uh, the study, so it found these periods of silence more relaxing than the relaxing music. The relaxing effect of the silence was more pronounced in these short intervals between music than it was in a long period of silence. Before the test started. So in other words, the most profound effect of silence seemed to be when it occurred in contrast. And Mm -hmm. this is a quote from Gross's article that that is quoting Bernardi, that the author of the study gives to the uh, author of the article, quote, perhaps the arousal is something that concentrates the mind in one direction so that when there's nothing more arousing, then you have deeper relaxation. Uh, So you're focused on something and then you take a break. Which is much more relaxing than doing nothing in the first place, huh?
3: Well, certainly I can think. I, I don't know how closely related this is, but uh, you can think of of moments in uh, modern music and older music where you have that that full stop, where yeah. everything goes silent for a second, and then the sound comes back right before
4: they drop with the drop, right?
3: Yeah, the, the drop, the, the the dubstep drop, or even of course, um, what was it, um, the the Beatles song with the famous uh, drop.
4: I, I'm no. not sure which day one. in the life, right? Is that the one? Oh, I know that song, but I can't remember if there's a drop in it, where there's like a, an a everything gets noise. very loud and then suddenly, quiet. yeah, there's like cacophony, yeah, yeah, yeah. cacophony, cacophony. I think you're and right. Then, yeah, and yeah, then
3: silence. Our Beatles fans will have to correct me on that one if I'm wrong. <laughs> uh, but but certainly there are examples of this throughout uh,
4: music. Uh, the drop. Totally well, I mean, it does focus the mind. the rests are as important as the beats, mm-hmm. uh, but of course, the finding that the brain responds mainly to contrast and change is borne out by uh, other research research in mice. so here's one interesting one that is also cited in the uh, the Nautilus piece back in uh, two thousand ten at the University of Oregon, there was this interesting finding about how the brain reacts to silence. So the interesting fact is that the brain processes silence as a distinct type of input apart from sound. Remember, we were talking about silence as a substance. Yeah, so the The, brain sees it as such, too. Yeah, the brain very much treats silence as a substance rather than just the absence of noise. So the researchers monitored the brains of rats exposed to bursts of sound and charted the brain activity for when sounds began and when sounds ended. And what they found was that Rats used two completely separate synaptic pathways for processing these types of sensations. So you hear a new sound, sound comes on, the the brain does one thing. Sound goes off, the brain goes a completely different synaptic route to the auditory cortex. Something it's, It's doing a different kind of processing. And the first thing to notice is, of course, this is necessary for the understanding of speech. When you're listening to somebody talk, how do you tell when one word ends and another begins in spoken communication? You have to hear the spaces. And that's not so easy to do. It's not easy to get computers to do this. Right, because certainly if
3: you hear yourself talk, you hear other people talk uh to varying degrees, depending on who's doing it during the talking. Yeah, the, the, the spaces between the words become almost microscopic.
4: Yeah. And then, of course, this is also a survival mechanism. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you ever thought about how unnerving it is to hear a sudden silence yes i have joe So yeah, fear is an adaptive mechanism, right? It, it triggers these survival behaviors. You've got a, a, a robot assassin coming at you. It's turning on its minigun, wearing up. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it triggers these survival behaviors in dangerous situations. You, you've got an impulse to freeze and be quiet or, uh, the body prepares itself to flee or, uh, or to fight for survival. Though, I mean, if it's the robot with the minigun, you don't have much of a good chance. Uh, but so how, how do animals know when to be afraid? Well, That's a yep. decent question.
3: Uh, yeah, and certainly one clue is if something has alerted other animals in their presence, right? That if something has caused a quiet. Uh, To spread amongst the the, the surrounding organisms.
4: Right. And the question is, is that sort of a universal language, an instinctual universal language among animals? And it looks like it might be. So one way, of course, animals can be afraid is learned fear associations. If uh, every time you go to the red food bowl, it shocks you, you're going to be afraid of the red food bowl. There's also instinctual species-specific triggers of fear, like uh, audible alarm calls or pheromones. Uh, But there was a study in... 2012 in current biology called silence resulting from the cessation of movement signals danger and what this study found is that uh, the other animal fear trigger is silence specifically the sudden cessation of the sound of movement you hear walking talking you hear moving along through the brush when whenever that goes quiet animals instinctively become afraid they know something's wrong uh, and the authors write in their abstract quote, as freezing is a pervasive fear response in animals, silence may constitute a truly public cue used by a variety of animals in the ecosystem to detect impending danger. So this is interesting that it becomes a, a cross species language. Yeah, like you're, you're not you don't have to listen to your own uh, co- co-species, you know, calling out. Be careful when you hear the birds becoming quiet, you know, something's up. Even if you are an escaped monkey from a, from a lab, <laughs> even if you are, even if you're a wolverine. But then to come back on the other side, there is another biological Role that silence seems to play and it's a positive nurturing one toward brain development. So there's a 2015 study by Imke uh, Kirsty in brain structure and function called is silence golden effects of auditory stimuli and their absence on adult hippocampal neurogenesis. So this essentially linked silence to brain development and they tested four different sound conditions, uh, which was so they had some mice and they tested Standard background noise in an animal testing facility. That sounds like a really pleasant noise, yeah. uh, but then they also compared this to white noise. They, they might have gone with brown noise, but they didn't. White noise, the pup calls of mice, so you know, little little mice calling out for the parents, and silence. And the hypothesis going into this experiment was that the baby mouse calls, the pup calls, would stimulate the growth of new brain cells in adults, and at first, all of the sounds except the white noise did seem to encourage one specific type of brain cell growth, neurogenesis uh, in the hippocampus. But after seven days, only silence was still associated with this brain cell growth, and that was a total surprise. But the authors write, quote, our results indicate that the unnatural absence of auditory inputs, as well as spectro-temporally rich, albeit ethologically irrelevant stimuli, activate precursor cells. In the case of silence, also leading to greater numbers of newborn immature neurons, whereas ambient and unstructured background auditory stimuli Do not. So, in other words, the theory is that artificial silence presents a healthy challenge to the brain, which prompts the brain to grow new brain cells in adaptation, more so than any of these other background noises.
3: It's interesting when you when you when you take that into account, thinking about our own. uh, Let's say you're driving along in the car. Right. Yeah. And you might think, oh, I need something to occupy my mind. Right. So I'm going to put on uh, some music and put on some podcast or what have you. Um, but really, your mind is going to be able to occupy itself. Maybe. But again, perhaps that's part of the problem you want. you? It's going to occupy itself. But maybe that's part of the problem. Right. Well,
4: it might just occupy itself with uh, obsession over your own mortality. Right. Or with <laughs> other things that y- you just don't have time for. Yeah. The basic uh, default mode network. Right. So this really complex picture of silence is emerging for me. The substance of silence is is strange because uh, it's freedom from noise. Of course, it seems to promote relaxation. We've seen that. But then you go into an intensely quiet room. We become aware of deeper and deeper noises, deeper into the quiet verse. And you start to go crazy. People lose their minds. They can't stand it. And then periods of silence seem to promote healthy growth of brain cells. It seems to be good for at least the brains of mice. Um, but then the sudden silence also triggers fear and alarm. So it seems our reactions to silence are almost as complex as our reactions to sound itself, which makes me wonder, is there really such a thing as silence? And if so, what is the ideal quiet? What are we really going for when we want some peace and quiet? What is it we have in mind? Hmm.
3: Well, I feel like this is um, this is a question that uh, is complicated by just the human experience of silence for, you know, for for one thing, because when I'm engaging with with actual silence, I'm also very engaging to varying degrees with inner silence. Yeah. And weighing those two. And then if that's going to color my memory about how quiet a particular setting was, you know? Like, if I, like, I've gone places before, like, when I had to think of, uh, for this podcast, like, what are the quietest places I've been to? Yeah. I can, like, the places that come to mind are, like, wilderness environments. Yes. They were not necessarily quiet. Like, one was, like, I'm um, kind of on top of a mountain in Yosemite, and there weren't any, like, human noises around me other than, like, I think I was, I was pretty worn out by the time I reached the top. Uh, but you know that the wind was uh, was sweeping through blowing across the, the trees and the and the rocks uh there there was the sound of, uh, of of loose rocks underfoot as i ascended but yet uh you know part of part of it was probably physical exertion part of it was just the, the you know the, a, an entirely new physical environment uh a slightly different uh you know sound environment like all of that further Colored my uh, interpretation of it as quiet, you know, so when I look back on it now, I'm I, it's easy for me to say, oh, that was one of the quietest places I've been to. Yeah. But in a way, it was just loud in different ways, yeah. both sonically and like just visually loud.
4: I thought of the the same thing. I mean, I, I was able to think of Big Bend, uh, which, mm-hmm. which was actually, I think, relatively quiet, but. When, when I think of quiet places, I, I just think of uh, like nature and stuff like that. It's not quiet at all. There's bugs everywhere. I, I was up in Tennessee last weekend sitting out on the porch one night mm-hmm. and I was thinking, man, it's so nice and quiet out here. It was not even remotely quiet. Oh, no. It was incredibly loud with different, like the, uh, it's like a, it's like a Phil Spector wall of sound <laughs> engineered entirely by bugs. Oh yeah. Wah, 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 wah. They're filling in every single conceivable hole where there could be a noise. They've all got their niche and it's all there. It's like a, it's like a, like a queen metal song, you know, where they've got, mm-hmm. it's just uh, s- floor to ceiling. Oh
3: yeah. Uh, I camped in, uh, Okefenokee Swamp here in Georgia several years back when on a canoe trip. Uh, and it was legitimately hard to sleep that night because the insects were so loud and the frogs, frogs like actually underneath the platform that we had our tent set up on were just so incredibly loud. It was it was worse than trying to sleep in a city.
4: But but in my memory, I interpreted this as peace and quiet.
3: Yeah. Yeah. In and in a sense, it is. <laughs> but it's it, but it, again, that that kind of. That's why it's so complicated to try and think like, well, what's what's my ideal level of silence? Because you know what, a doctor's waiting room can be pretty quiet, but oh, that's no good but at that, all. Yeah, but yeah, it's not good because you're about to go in to see the doctor. Your head is probably more alive with uh, with worry and concerns and what ifs than uh, than any
4: other time. Yeah, I mean, I'm. I wonder what it would be like to find it soothing to sit in a silent room and hear nothing but the sound of a pencil scraping against paper as it describes the shape of a mole.
3: Yeah. Um, you know, it also makes me think of, of airports. We mentioned Eno earlier yeah. uh, in, uh, in Jest, but, of course, he created music for airports. A right. Wonderful ambient album. And uh, every time I listen to it or and or every time I'm in, in an actual airport, I think, why am I listening to CNN <laughs> on several different TVs on top of all the noise instead of music for airports is is there an idea here that actually more distraction is is better like that is the form of silence that works better in an airport as opposed to the 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 the, the, the idea of silence uh in the midst of ambient music
4: hmm. i don't know i don't know either
3: or should we just all have uh you know our, our heads encased in a, some sort of sarcophagus to uh enforce <laughs> Uh, silence upon us. Well,
4: that's another thing. Even even if you put in earplugs and you, you know, you're very good ones and you don't hear what's going on around you, there is still a sort of connected sense of touch, you know, the vibrational energy. There's some sort of blending between our sense of touch and our sense of hearing.
3: Yeah, yeah. And certainly you're still going to receive those, uh, those waves. You're certainly going to hear with your skull uh, to a large degree. So yeah, you're not going to be able to, to, to
4: completely uh, silence it out. So, Robert, here's something that I read about when I was, you know, doing some browsing on the subject of silence, right. the idea of enforced silence. That's well, a hard thing to pull off. Right. Because you can isolate somebody.
3: You can put them in solitary. You can go, uh, you know, Cold War, John C. Lilly and drop somebody in an isolation tank. Right. But for the most part, like, people have a right to be loud and people can be loud uh, outwardly and certainly inwardly.
4: You know, I don't usually think of a prison as a place that's going to be especially a a refuge of peace and quiet. Mm -hmm. But in the 19th century, there was this regime that I read about known as the Auburn system. It evolved in the Auburn prison of Auburn, New York. And the way this worked is that you had prisoners who'd go out, perform hard labor all day. And then they were put in solitary confinement at night with enforced silence at all times. No, No talking. Well, that sounds absolutely dreadful. Absolutely dreadful. Well, anyway, the idea, I guess, is that, you know, criminals, they learn habits. They they learn things from each other. They learn and reinforce bad behaviors from other criminals through some sort of perverted form of social education. But if the prisoners can't make a sound, they can't communicate with one another in order to reinforce and instruct. But I'm curious how... I mean, not like I think it would be ethical to do this in any case, but putting questions of ethicality aside, did this work? Did people really find that this increased penitence caused people to stop living a criminal lifestyle?
3: I I am almost positive that this did not. My my bet is that this did not work, Uh, though it does sound like, you know, perfectly deplorable uh, from, you know, by 19th century, uh, penal standards.
4: I mean, I think, I think it sort of fits with the idea of, you know, what do you need? Nothing. You, you need, you need your Bible and you need quiet reflection. Yeah. And so they put you in a room by yourself, no talking, read your Bible and that's it. And I guess it was supposed to encourage guilt, you know, guilt and remorse and feelings of wanting to reform. But I don't know. I think when you force people to be silent, do, do you also, encourage them to stew on what bothers them well i th- <sighs>
3: yeah i mean it's you're not necessarily making any positive movement there i mean in, in researching this episode i did a lot of uh, searches around for silence related um studies mm-hmm. and silence can have many meanings of course as we've right. already dis- discussed one meaning we haven't really gotten into is silence in terms of not talking about your problems, not talking about right. what's bothering you, not talking about an issue.
4: Well, that's another, uh, you've done an episode of this show before, it was also several years ago on the spiral oh, yeah, of yes. silence, mm-hmm. exactly. which is not not so much about sound, but just about not speaking up.
3: Right. And yeah, that that becomes an echo chamber of its own. Um, but I mean, on top of that, of course, uh, the... All of the the research indicates that solitary confinement is just a brutal uh, tactic to use against anybody. So yeah, I
4: think it is it is now coming to be considered a form of torture. Yeah. Right? So I'd be willing to look into it more.
3: But I my my firm suspicion is that uh, this uh, this prison experiment like so like pretty much anything you call a prison experiment <laughs> uh, <laughs> probably did not have great, uh, great outcome. Now, of course. That's when silence is imposed upon you, inflicted upon you. But uh, but certainly there there are plenty of models for uh, embracing silence, taking on vows of silence. Certainly uh, there are a number of uh, monastic traditions and the uh, the Catholic tradition that come to mind. Uh, it also silence also plays a role in Hindu philosophy, where it is uh, uh, Mauna uh also uh, even a greek f- philosopher of uh, pythagoras of uh, of samos imposed a rule of silence on his uh his disciples uh, pythagorean silence stints of 5 years or more uh, even to prove your commitment apparently
4: oh man yeah the music of the spheres you yeah. can't hear it unless you stop talking
3: yeah and then of course there's the whole issue of silence, uh, in the workplace. Silence, uh, in study. You know, here at, uh, How Stuff Works, uh, over, over the years I've seen, I've seen this, this transformation. So like, when I first started here, like, Eight or nine years ago, we had these big. And you were here at the the, yeah. the time. We had these big not big eight or cubicles. nine years
4: ago, but like six years ago. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah. still
3: the same office, so it was like sort of big, three sided cubicles, really spacious. Uh, you, you felt like a monk in um uh, in, in the library at times. You know, you're able to get your materials, you had your computer, and you were working away on your on your own. There were days where you didn't you didn't necessarily see anybody that was seated on an opposite row from you. And, uh, we've had a couple of different offices since then and things have gotten more open office as is the trend, right? Where the idea is that, oh, we're going to treat, treat everything like it's a newsroom, treat everything, uh, in a way so that we're inspiring all sorts of uh you know vital and, and imaginative creative energies that will just free flow and ricochet around the office.
4: Man, there is nothing more inspiring than overhearing somebody else's work conversation. Yeah. <laughs> um,
3: you know, and I I I feel like there are there are professions where an open, open office environment work better, there are individuals for whom it works better. Uh-huh. Um, I think the problem is always when you try applying any kind of one-size-fits-all um plan to a, a workforce.
4: Well, it seems to me, uh, from what I've read, everything is open office now. It's what yeah. everybody does. Uh, I'm not quite sure why that trend has caught on, but... But it's not just, uh, it's not just here
3: in, uh, the, the, the work world. I mean, you also see it out in the, uh, world of scientific research. In fact, uh, there, have, there have been some, uh, papers in recent years where they've brought this up, saying that, hey, we have too much enforced interaction in science. Um, in fact, uh, Peter Higgs, uh, has stated that... Of the Higgs boson. Yeah. Of, of the Higgs boson has stated that, uh, the peace and quiet that he was uh, afforded in the 1960s, which resulted in his Nobel uh, Prize winning work, is no longer possible. <laughs> you know, so you have you have a number of scientists over the years who've really been um, proponents of silence. Uh, Newton, Einstein, uh, just to just to name a few here. They've all prized silence and isolation. And if they were working today, would they have it? And if they didn't have it, would they have been able to, uh, achieve the ends that they, that they achieved in their
4: lives? Well, not to mention how much they'd be required to tweet about their ongoing research and upcoming conferences. Yes. <laughs> I'll
3: do that Facebook Live. Uh, make sure, Newton, that you do your Facebook Live. You got, I understand you're going to do something with an apple. Um, whether you have a dog door or something. Let's get some, let's point some, uh, <laughs> some cameras at that.
4: Facebook wants to know. What is this? Yes. Why am I seeing this?
3: <laughs> who who are you? Uh well, it's the world it's the world we have. It's the world we have to deal with uh And we'll, we'll find a way to work through the noise. I mean, that's the scenario at any point, right? Right. No, no matter how noisy you think the world is, no matter how quiet a slice you've carved out for yourself, you're still going to have to work through the
4: noise. Well, I mean, that brings us back to the, to the question, I guess, the core question, the substance of silence. What is it? And why is some silence desirable, but other silence is not? Uh, so you might put in this loud, uh, white noise track Mm -hmm. at work in order to get some quiet from the conversations that are going on around you. So you're increasing the volume in order to get some peace and quiet. It, this signals again, that, that it's clearly about uh, something about the, the introduction and novelty of sound rather than the volume of sound.
3: Yeah. I guess I'd be tempted to think of it as oxygen, yeah. you know? And like I might want to take a breath of pure oxygen every now and then, but I don't just necessi- for fun. Just for fun, but I don't want to necessarily live in an environment of pure oxygen, no. and breathe it all the time. That that would kill you. Yeah. But but uh but every now and then I'll sleep in my specialized oxygen tent. Uh <laughs> and uh and it will revitalize me. But hey, that's uh that's our take on the topic. We we put it to you though, what is the quietest place you have ever found yourself in? What, what's the quietest place you've visited? What is the quietest place you have created for yourself in your
4: own life? And I guess the question is a dual question, right? What yeah. is the place that has felt the most quiet to you? Like the ideal mind silence versus what's actually the lowest number of ambient decibels?
3: Yeah. Be very interested to hear, hey,
4: maybe you've even been to one of these uh, these soundless chambers that we've uh, created in the world. I want to hear from the people, and I know they've got to be out there, the people who went in one and did not get all freaked out. Because I'm sure there are some people. I, I'm sure we hear about the ones that get freaked out. I, have you been to one of these things and didn't really bother you? I want to hear about that. I mean, there are people who... Who are noisy enough, yeah, and or make enough
3: noises just moving around, uh, that I think they would they would fare just fine. Like they would never notice. They're just if you're just sitting there, like groaning to yourself and cracking your knuckles and talking to yourself and groaning some more, then you know you're probably not going to notice the desk level about how I'll show all them, show all them, yeah. <laughs> Griping about your office environment, all that. Let's stop being
4: grumpy, Robert. How can they get in touch with us? (laughs) Oh, Oh, hey, before we do that, we should also mention that this week we are going to be in New York. That's right. If you were in New York, specifically,
3: if you were attending the, uh, the Star Trek Mission New York, uh, uh, con in New York City, then you should, uh, you should check us out. We are going to be there. We're going to be doing a presentation. It's going to be Star Trek-y. It's going to be science-y. It's going to be a little cosmic. It's going to be a little, uh, psychological.
4: Yeah, so the conference goes from September 2nd to September 4th. If, if you're going to be there, our panel will be on Friday afternoon in the early afternoon. And uh, you can look us up in the conference materials. But, yeah, so if, if you're around, come say hi. Yeah,
3: yeah, come hear what we have to say and then uh, have a little chat with us afterwards. And in the meantime, uh, head on over to com. That's where you'll find all of the podcasts, the videos, blog posts, links out to our various social media accounts, uh, and that Facebook account, the Mind, you will definitely find uh, information there about the upcoming Star Trek thing.
4: And if you want to get in touch with us, as always, you can email us at blowthemind at HowStuffWorks.com.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
1: the new Dexcom G7 you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com.
3: Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations. Use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com compatibility.
4: Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here and it's transparent.